episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Seltzer. Do you wish that water were somehow spicy? Try Seltzer today. Welcome to episode 88 of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Today, we are talking about the Ocean Conservancy's 2019 Father of the Year, the Seahorse. Yes, you heard me right. There is a very contentious and prestigious award given out by the Ocean Conservancy to the ocean's best dad every year. So if you want to talk about baseball mitts, grilling, and how to make a phone call last 30 seconds before handing you off to mom, seahorses are your dudes. But we'll be talking about more than just why the seahorse is the most hated fish at ocean PTA meetings today. The seahorse lives in really specialized environments and has evolved a bunch of cool adaptations in order to do so. Unfortunately, as climate change has progressed, these fragile ecosystems have been put under increasing pressure from storms and ocean acidification. Additionally, people have been removing seahorses from the ocean at an alarming rate to supply the global fish trade, as well as specialized seahorse markets like Chinese traditional medicine, pet stores, and curio shops. That's right, even Webkins is threatening seahorses. You went hunting for gems, but all you found was the IUCN endangered species list. Yikes! So today, we're going to break down why seahorses are important, how climate change and other human actions are affecting them, and where we go from here. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. If you want to take two minutes to help out The Sweaty Penguin, you can either leave us a five-star rating and review, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. Doing either earns you a special shout-out at the end of the show, Joining the Patreon gets you merch, bonus content, and a whole lot more. But first, what makes the seahorse the Deep Blue's super dad? Well, the seahorse is part of the Signathidae family, which is not a Greek family's last name, but rather it means that the males endure pregnancy instead of the females. Yes, the scientific community uses the word endure because, well, I guess I can't really comment on that. Female seahorses will use their oviposter, a tubular organ that deposits eggs, to place their eggs inside the male seahorse's brood pouch, a soft pocket on their stomach that protects the eggs. And I wish I'd known that in time for my high school physics class's egg drop, because if I could have gotten a brood pouch, I'd have won that thing easy. Take that, Harold! You thought a shoebox with packing peanuts was gonna work? You got nothing on me! After the eggs are dropped in the brood pouch, the male seahorse's sperm will fertilize the eggs, and the father will provide nutrients to the growing embryos. About a week before birth, the offspring will hatch out of their eggs and swim around in the brood pouch. 
Then a week later, the male seahorse will undergo contractions to expel anywhere from 5 to 2,000 baby seahorses, depending on the species. About 0.5% of these offspring will survive into adulthood. But seahorses aren't the only members of the Cygnathidae family. Pipefishes and sea dragons undergrow male pregnancy, too. So what really sets the seahorse apart as the oceanic father of the year is its commitment to its partner. Listen to how the spiny seahorse greets its mate every morning. In the early morning light, males woo females with some fancy fin work. Well, I guess you can't see their sweet moves from an audio clip, but trust me, they're adorable. Who would have thought male and female seahorses dance with each other to Mark Russell's fresh air piano piece every day, and they say romance is dead? In all seriousness, seahorses practice this courtship dance, which by the way is called noodling, awesome, to ensure that their relationship stays strong, that their reproductive cycles stay synchronized, and that their partners are still alive. See, most seahorses are monogamous creatures, meaning they only mate with one partner. This is because seahorses have a hard time finding mates. They're notoriously bad swimmers, they're found in low densities, they rely on camouflage to hide from predators, and they start every conversation with, hey girl, what that thing do? I mean, that just limits your options immediately. So by reassuring each other that they do still like-like each other every day with their fancy fin work... <coughs> they can undergo more pregnancies during a single mating season and ultimately achieve greater reproductive success. Also, they prevent their little seahorse kiddos from having to decide which parents they want to live with in the divorce proceedings. But seahorses have a purpose besides having babies, as evidenced by their distinct lack of a family vlog channel. Their work mostly consists of balancing the food chain. They control populations of tiny fish, shrimp, and plankton by consuming them with their long, tubular snouts. And they're really successful at doing so. Seahorses have a 90% hunting success rate. If only they could gloat about their achievements on LinkedIn, they'd be a menace. Aside from that, seahorses are also a wonderful model of how specialized organisms can be. While they may not look like it, Seahorses are fish. They have a swim bladder to keep them afloat, and they have gills, so they meet all the necessary requirements. But that's pretty much where the similarities end. Unlike other fish, seahorses have an upright posture, due to the fact that they have bony plates instead of scales. This, along with their curved heads and long snouts, gives them their horseish appearance. It also enables them to swing forwards, upwards, downwards, and backwards. That's right, seahorses can do the cha-cha slide. And based on that clip, apparently they can cha-cha real smooth, too. Additionally, seahorses have prehensile tails, meaning they can grab onto things. And they also have cells called chromatophores in their skin. These cells contain sacs of different colored pigments, which can be hidden or shown by contracting little muscle fibers around them. The seahorse has all of these cool fish cheat codes for a reason. 
It lives in specialized environments. Seahorses need calm, shallow, and warm waters to thrive, so they live exclusively in seagrass beds, mangroves, estuaries, and coral reefs in temperate and tropical waters around the world. Because the waters in those areas are relatively calm, the seahorse doesn't need to be an expert swimmer. If the water ever does get turbulent, it can simply grab onto a blade of seagrass or another seahorse with its prehensile tail to stay anchored. Or, if the seahorse notices a predator nearby, it can display the different pigments in its chromatophores and blend in with the surrounding environment, looking just like coral is foolproof. But seahorses aren't just adorable, they're also really important. Seahorses are key to regulating their ecosystems. They keep populations of copepods, tiny shrimp, and plankton under control, and they supply larger predators like tuna and crabs with a source of food. Without seahorses doing their part, populations of these other animals could get thrown out of whack. Unfortunately, seahorses are threatened by climate change. For instance, an increase in tropical storms as a result of climate change is making the once calm waters of the seahorse habitat a lot choppier. Sometimes the water is rough enough to kill a seahorse outright, other times it drags them out to sea and away from their mates. This forces the remaining seahorse to seek out a new mate, which takes a long time, especially if they're using OkCupid, and decreases their reproductive capacity. Climate change also disrupts seahorse ecosystems. We've done episodes on coral reefs, mangroves, and seagrass, and I encourage you to check those out. But in short, all of these coastal ecosystems are facing threats, from sea level rise, ocean acidification, tropical storms, not to mention many human activities. Given that seahorses rely on these ecosystems, that's a big concern for them. Furthermore, since seahorses are notoriously bad swimmers, it's not like they can migrate easily from one ecosystem to another. Seahorses are like me. Since I don't have a car, I can't migrate easily from my apartment ecosystem to the Buffalo Wild Wings ecosystem. I'm not saying I can't do it, I just have to walk for 25 minutes, including on a narrow sidewalk under an overpass. It's hard to get into too much detail here, though, because the links between climate change and seahorse are actually very understudied, but it's pretty clear at face value that climate change is having an effect. That said, the biggest issue affecting seahorses isn't climate. It's actually overfishing. Listen to the University of British Columbia's Dr. Amanda Vincent describe the extent of this problem. The export of seahorses totals tens of millions of animals a year from something like 80 countries. It varies, of course, year to year and um, has imposed huge pressures on the seahorses. Seahorses are used globally for traditional medicine, particularly traditional Chinese medicine. That's by far and away the dominant use. They're also used, of course, for ornamental display in home and public aquariums, and they're used for um, curios and souvenirs. Trade is sufficient to threaten many populations quite seriously with notable declines. Trade is sufficient enough to threaten many populations quite seriously with notable declines. Whenever we talk about marine ecosystems, there tends to be a long list of factors that put together 
lead a species to decline. So to hear from Dr. Vincent that seahorses are threatened this badly by one individual thing is really striking and not unheard of, but certainly out of the ordinary. It's like the McRib of ocean issues. It's not always on the menu, but when it is, it's still quite disappointing. It makes sense though. If seahorses are being exported at a rate of tens of millions per year, if seahorses are only having five to 2,000 offspring and only 0.5% of them survive into adulthood, then removing seahorses from the ocean that fast is bound to quickly cause a problem. That's why out of the 47 known seahorse species, 12 are listed as vulnerable and two are listed as endangered. 46 are also listed as cute. Sorry, Hippocampus Bargabanti, you're special in your own way, but you didn't make the cut. So let's dive into these various drivers of overfishing. The primary reason Dr. Vincent mentions is traditional medicine. Dried seahorses have historically been used, particularly in Chinese traditional medicine, to treat a number of ailments. They are believed to have the potential to cure infertility, baldness, asthma, arthritis, and other conditions. According to a study in Natural Product Research, which does appear to be peer-reviewed, one species of seahorse, Hippocampus cuda, was found to cure arthritis and its associated inflammation. But there is currently no scientific evidence to support the claims of other medicinal properties. Despite this lack of evidence, the global trade of dried seahorses for use in traditional medicine exceeds 20 million seahorses per year. What's more, many of the seahorses supplied for this trade are caught illegally. For instance, a report by Traffic, which is a non-governmental organization that monitors global wildlife trade and doesn't monitor traffic for some reason, found that seahorses made up 24.4% of the total marine products confiscated from traffickers in the air transport sector from 2009 to 2017. A single seizure of trafficked organisms could contain up to 20,000 seahorses valued at more than 8.8 .8 euros or $9.46. That's $189,200 worth of seahorses in one shipment. Imagine trying to bring that on an airplane. What if there's turbulence and dried seahorses start raining down from the overhead bin? I mean, there's a seatbelt sign and a no-smoking sign, but I don't think planes have a ignore-the-raining-seahorses sign. So this is a trickier issue, right? I can't defend medicinal uses of seahorses that aren't scientifically proven. I always, always, always lead with scientific evidence, unless it's about consequences of sugar, in which case, screw science, give me my Sour Patch Kids back, mom. That said, I do want to provide a little context. According to a Oceana article, traditional remedies remain popular in China because its healthcare system isn't working for a lot of people, particularly people from rural or poor areas. Doctors are paid lower salaries to keep services affordable in these places, but this decreases the quality of their services and creates distrust between doctors and patients. So instead of going to a doctor they don't trust, people travel to prestigious urban hospitals to get treated by a doctor with a better reputation. 
This can lead to them waiting in long lines for hours, and sometimes even sleeping on the floor before being seen by a doctor. Not to mention these treatments can be more expensive. This makes the locally available dried seahorse an exciting alternative. And again, not really based in science, but I think it's important to understand why seahorses as medicine remain so compelling and maintain some empathy as we move forward. Another reason seahorses are fished is the curio trade for little souvenirs. Around a million seahorses are used for the curio trade every year. As you can tell by listening to Neil Garrick Maidment, founder and director of the Seahorse Trust, this issue can be quite frustrating. Generally, these are smaller seahorses that are not suitable for the traditional medicine trade, and so they are used in the curio trade, where they are often encased in resin as key rings, pendants, or as paperweights. This is the trade we are trying to stop, because it is needless and pointless. It also uses smaller seahorses that have not grown to maturity and be given a chance to breed. And so the numbers of seahorses are rapidly going into decline. Now, I don't know that I'd go so far as to say it's pointless. Seahorses are actually very pointy. Some even have thorns on them. But I'd say the same for traditional medicine or any use, really. If someone is willing to pay for something, then obviously that thing has value and they should be allowed to do that. It isn't pointless. That said, the price ought to reflect the social cost of the item, and the person ought to have full information before making the purchase. And for both cases, I'm not confident in either of those things. A lot of this seahorse trade goes on illegally, so I highly doubt the illegal markets are slapping on a seahorse conservation tax or anything. In fact, later on in the video, Neil says that policing of this international trade is so poor that people can still sell seahorse curios on selling platforms like Amazon, Preloved, Splot, Alabama, Poshmark, and at the time, eBay. And as for full information, we covered traditional medicine, but for curios, would you really buy that souvenir? if you knew the damage it caused to seahorse species and marine ecosystems? Like, come on, do you really need a tacky resin-encased baby seahorse that will survive the apocalypse in your office just to say you lived near the beach or visited one once? Just shake off your head and let a bunch of sand fall out of your hair. That'll serve the exact same purpose. So again, I wouldn't say it's pointless but I do suspect people would not engage with the practice as much if there were appropriate pricing and full information. Yet another driver of overfishing is home aquariums. Around 1 million seahorses are removed from the ocean every year for this. What's more, only around 10% of these seahorses survive in captivity for longer than a year, whereas in the wild, they usually live for 8 to 10 years. This is because seahorses require optimal water conditions to survive, which means aquarium owners have to maintain a certain level of ammonia, nitrates, nitrites, phosphates, calcium, magnesium, pH, alkalinity, specific gravity, and temperature. That's a lot to take on. I own an aquarium, so I have to do that for my fish, but my fish are also much easier to care for than seahorses. It's like caring for a chia pet versus caring for an untrained chihuahua. 
so I do not think I know enough to pull off a seahorse aquarium right now, and given that, it's absolutely not something for a total beginner. Seahorses are also picky eaters, and no, frozen dino nuggets and french fries don't seem to do the trick. But young seahorses have to eat about 3,000 pieces of food per day, and they prefer this food to be live. They don't do as well with the frozen packaged crustaceans that are easier to buy and keep. So a lot of captive seahorses end up dying, just weeks after being placed in a tank, because their owners are unable to provide them with the conditions and diet they need to survive. But while all of these are major reasons that seahorse harvesting is profitable and continuing to happen, most of the seahorses that are removed from the ocean are actually removed accidentally. And by accidentally, I don't mean people are sleep-swimming into the ocean and pulling them out, and then waking up on the beach with seahorses in their hand going, Oh, oops, that's the third time this month! No, by accidentally, I mean seahorses are caught as bycatch in huge fishing operations. According to a study in the Journal of Fish Biology, up to 95% of the seahorses taken from the water are caught as bycatch in indiscriminate fishing gear like bottom trawls. These nets catch things like crabs, lobster, flounder, James Charles, everything. It's like plunging your hand into a bag of M&Ms and grabbing every single color when you're really only looking for the green ones, because green's totally the hottest M&M. And according to the California Academy of Sciences, Dr. Healy Hamilton, this is actually the source of most seahorses used for the illegal trade markets we just discussed. The vast majority of seahorses that are harvested for this trade come as bycatch from fisheries. And where they used to be thrown back into the water alive, they're now taken out on the docks and dried, and all major fisheries that use bottom trawling, where they're dragging nets along the bottom, pull up tons of seahorses as they do that. And those seahorse species end up being dried and then shipped. According to Dr. Hamilton, when seahorses were accidentally caught, they used to be thrown back in the water alive, but now they're not, because there's a market for them. That's why the seahorses are removed. It is a conscious choice, based on what Dr. Hamilton said. And look, I get it. Fishing is not an easy business, so there is no reason for fishermen to throw away a perfectly good source of revenue. If I found out people were willing to pay for the outtakes of this podcast, where I either run out of breath mid-sentence, or accidentally say constipation when I mean to say conservation, I'd gladly sell them to you. But if we zoom out and look big picture, if seahorses are becoming endangered and pulled out of the ocean too fast, that source of revenue would dry up at some point. This is what economists call the tragedy of the commons, which is not a Greek play, but the dilemma where individuals have unfettered access to a common resource, there are no social structures in place to govern use of that resource, and as such, everyone acts in their own best interest, and they deplete their entire supply so no one wins. Think sharing nachos at someone's Super Bowl party. It's free, it's unstructured, so the plate is empty in seconds, minus seven jalapenos. Come on, Jake. You overdid it with the jalapenos again. 
In this particular case for seahorses, it's even worse, because bottom trawling essentially bulldozes the ocean floor, leaving the seahorses that aren't caught up in nets to live in damaged and depleted environments. And again, since seahorses are poor swimmers, they can't necessarily move. So due to overfishing and habitat destruction, their numbers decline in the destroyed mangroves, seagrass beds, coral reefs, and coastal shallow waters that they can't escape from. And hearing from Dr. Hamilton that this is a business decision, this is a choice, we can start to forge a path toward a solution. Because if done right, conserving seahorses could in the long run make sure these fishermen can make more money. So how do we do that? As for bottom trawling, one path forward would be to create more sustainable fisheries. This would prevent habitat destruction, and while it would probably remove revenue from seahorses, it seems like that loss would easily be made up due to economic benefits of adopting better practices. According to the Environmental Defense Fund, compared to business as usual, sustainably managed fisheries could produce 17 million metric tons or 23% more wild fish and generate $90 billion or 315% more in profits each year. Since our oceans would be healthier, more resilient, and filled with more super dads, keeping these damn Gen Z fish repopulating, fisheries would not have to deal with depleted stocks and would continue delivering high volumes of food and profits every year. So you have to be strategic with this. There are certainly some sustainable fishing strategies that would not see this boom in profits. There are also a lot of cases where fisheries ignore regulations, so it may not be all that successful to try to force certain practices on anyone. But with buy-in and with some strategic thinking, you can certainly envision a scenario where sustainable fisheries help everyone. We could also, rather than slapping regulations on trade, instead increase the number of seahorse aquacultures. An aquaculture is not the latest fashion trend in Atlantis, but the controlled cultivation of aquatic organisms for use in some sort of trade. Seahorses could be bred and reared in an aquaculture, then sold to vendors for use in medicine or curio-making or aquarium-keeping. Captive-bred seahorses are also less susceptible to stress from aquarium settings than wild-caught seahorses, so aquarium owners could see a benefit from more aquaculture. And by flooding the trade with a steady supply of seahorses, aquaculture could decrease interruptions of wild seahorse populations. According to Carol Cozy-Schmar, who co-founded the Ocean Rider Seahorse Farm in Hawaii, people who want to buy seahorses would be just as happy with one raised on a farm. Well, we would like to be able to be breeding many more species and have them, have them on the marketplace, because that's how you really turn off the collection of wild fish. You just, you breed them, they're there, people can make a choice, and they will choose a farm-raised uh, pet over one that comes out of the wild. Now, Carol's idea that people will automatically choose farm-raised may be true for aquarium owners, but I don't know that that's true across the board. For instance, people looking to use seahorses for medicine may be skeptical that captive-bred seahorses would have the same properties and still insist on purchasing wild ones. That said, 
saving any wild seahorse without any economic hit is certainly something to be excited about. But aquaculture has other limitations too. There could be concerns with where these aquacultures are located, since coastal ecosystems are so fragile. And seahorses are also more susceptible to stress and disease when they go from living in the wild to living in captivity. It's like going from your parents' house to your freshman year college dorm room. You have the worst cold of your life by October and ultimately flunk out of your Spanish class. The water quality in the aquaculture could induce stress within the seahorses if a ton of them are living in one area, and if that leads them to get sick and die, that defeats the purpose. So there'd certainly be a lot to figure out, but ultimately, those challenges may be easier to overcome than the challenges of trying to prevent this trade from existing in the first place. Bigger commercial farms, such as Carol's, could help overcome some of those challenges, since they would be able to provide the seahorses enough space to thrive. And allowing seahorse trade also means more people can get into the industry, which helps the global economy. Regulations are also an option too, and many of these come in the form of a Marine Protected Area, or MPA. Glad to see Marine Protected Area snatch the acronym away from Maxi Pads of America. That was not a good name for a Netflix reality show. There are a number of ways that MPAs can be implemented. For example, a no-take MPA is highly protected, and removing or destroying wildlife is strictly prohibited there. I assume Yev Kassem from Seinfeld just stands around there saying, No seahorse for you! Other MPAs allow for some disturbances, like fishing, based on designated zones. Obviously, if those no-take MPAs were implemented for seahorses, their numbers would rebound very quickly. But this would come with some economic consequences for local fishermen who depend on seahorses for income. So it's certainly worth consulting with local communities to decide how drastic any measures like this ought to be. Yes, seahorses are threatened, but it's not like there's four left. If we act now, we have a wide variety of solutions at our disposal to help populations rebound. Look, I get that it seems overwhelming at face value to hear a species is in decline, climate change threatens to make it worse, and all the while, there's a massive market where people are demanding to buy said species. But where there is demand, there is money. And I think that's all the more reason why we ought to find ways to help seahorse populations rebound. Because if we can do that, we'll have healthier oceans, a more sustainable seahorse trade, and ensure that when the dog from Webkin's welcomes you to the curio shop, you can find what you're looking for. If you love all the carbonation of soda but hate that pesky delicious flavor, then seltzer is for you. With seltzer, you get that refreshing, bubbly feel while also contributing to global warming by increasing carbon emissions. How cool! Seltzer, let's see how long you can hold in that burp. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise.
Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Sarah Krejci, Associate Professor of Biology and Environmental Science at Bethune-Cookman University. Dr. Krejci, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you very much for having me. First off, could you tell us a bit about your research and what led to your interest in marine biology? What attracted to me was an internship that I had as an undergraduate at the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago. And I realized during that internship that I loved research and I also loved communicating about research um, to anyone that, that was interested in listening. And seahorses are interesting biologically. They need our help ecologically. Um, and there are, even, even though you think of a seahorse, there are close to 46, 47 plus species of seahorses around the world. They're tropical, they're subtropical. Um, they're, some of them are as small as a grain of rice and others of them can reach sizes of a foot. So there's a great amount of diversity within this group of organisms. And I think that the types of research that you can do and the outreach um, and the conservation projects that you can, can use them as sort of an umbrella species for are just limitless. And so I think that they really help appease my curiosity um, and allow me to sort of, you know, do some good with the, the research that I'm doing with my students. So when I started reading about seahorses, it appeared that temperature change is one thing they're actually quite resilient to, but obviously climate change brings a lot of impacts, ocean acidification, habitat loss, tropical storms, it can affect the food chain, the list goes on. So are there any impacts of climate change that you feel would specifically threaten seahorses, or is it more just the collective impact of all these multiple stressors? Absolutely. So there is a lot that we don't know about how climate change influences seahorses. As I mentioned before, there's right now 46, 47 recognized species of seahorses globally. And not every single species has been studied with its impacts to temperature. Uh, the one species that we really work with heavily in the lab is the dwarf seahorse, which is Hippocampus zostri that's found in North America. And that is one species where there aren't any published papers on how temperature influences this particular species. When we look at other um, genetically similar, um, closely related species of seahorses, we do find that there are some parts of temperature that will increase you know, the number of babies that they have, um, the size, the survival of the babies, but that temperature sort of positive impact caps out. And so when you start getting above 28, 29 degrees Celsius, which is around like 86 um, degrees in Fahrenheit, then you begin to see the negative consequences of temperature. Um, some of the other published studies on temperature impacts that it increases the metabolism of the seahorses. And we don't necessarily see an increase in the feeding of those seahorses at the higher temperature. So your metabolism has peaked up, but you may not actually be getting enough food to be able to compensate for the, the impacts. And the research that has been done has been under a short sort of time scale where we can see, you know, how this influences the seahorses um, over the matter of weeks or months. But what are the longer term consequences of them being exposed to these stressful um, circumstances over the course of years or multiple generations of seahorses? And that's an area that isn't well studied. Um, you also mentioned ocean acidification. 
And there are a handful of papers looking at um, OA impacts and pH impacts on seahorses. And those are showing that you get reduced activity in the seahorses, um, reduced respiration rates in the seahorses. And so we know that there's an impact. Um, one of the studies that is missing in the literature is the combined impacts of seahorses and the change in ocean acidification as well. So we know from many other fish species that when you have both increased temperatures and a lowering of the pH, that that's when you see the more dramatic impacts to the species. Um, and so we don't know what that is going to be like for seahorses. We also know that seahorses do migrate on a small scale. So as they, you know, the, the surface water warms up in the summer, they are then migrating into deeper waters where it's a little bit cooler. So the concern with climate change is that if that cooler water, that refuge area isn't there, then where could they migrate to, especially with a, a you know, species that doesn't have a strong swimming capability to be able to travel, you know, tens of, you know, hundreds of miles away from their, you know, main habitat. But I guess that um, migration issue would also be an issue for habitat loss where commercial development or pollution or other human factors would wreck a seahorse habitat. So because seahorses are slow swimmers, because it's not like you can just go to another estuary particularly easily, is that a reason seahorses might be uniquely vulnerable to these threats? Or do you think any species in this type of habitat would have a tough time with these uh, development issues? Absolutely. I think that seahorses and other small benthic organisms, organisms that live closely associated to uh, the ocean floor are particularly vulnerable, not only to climate change, but also what we call anthropogenic disturbance. And that's just a fancy word for all of those things that you're talking about. Um, here in Florida, we are experiencing a greater occurrence of harmful algal blooms all over our coast. Um, one of the estuaries that I work with is the Indian River Lagoon. It's a 152 mile long estuary on the east coast of Florida. And they have been experiencing annual algal blooms of different species. The first one was a brown tide bloom. And we lost 85% of our seagrass in this 152 mile long lagoon. So that seagrass we know is a critical habitat for um, seahorses as well as their close relatives, the pipefish. And when you look at the data um, from the, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, you begin to see those declines in seahorses and pipefish. Um, anecdotally, we've also you know, gone out to sites where we used to be able to have a great diversity of signaphid species at seahorses and pipefish. And that whole habitat has been lost for over five, six years. Um, and obviously the, the seahorses and pipefish have disappeared with that as well. And the, the sort of, we look at the seahorses and pipefish and tell their story from that perspective, but we know that we're experiencing this unusual mortality event with manatees because of the loss of that seagrass. So the whole ecosystem has really been changing and shifting. Um, and those algal blooms are related to nutrient pollution um, coming off of our lawns, as well as from leaky septic tanks and sewer lines. Um, from the rapid development of, you know, the human population along the coast over the last, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. And so to solve those problems is going to be very expensive. Um, and 
you know, to your point in terms of the migrations of these cygnaphid species, um, some of our cygnaphids, like our line seahorse, which is one of the larger species in these and Florida waters, when they give birth, the males will produce um, pelagic offspring. So they get caught up in the ocean currents. And that's one of the ways that they can move from estuary to estuary and have that migration. But the adults tend to stay, you know, in their, their localized seagrass bed, and they have very little sort of movement um, within those beds. Females actually move more than males do. Um, one of the other ways that they can migrate is through drifting. So if a storm comes through and some of the seagrass or the drift algae that they're living in gets uprooted, then that can get carried along the lagoon or out through an inlet to another coast. So they rely on sort of this, you know, either through the, the offspring or through environmental sort of disturbance that would allow them to be able to move and migrate. Um, the one species of seahorse that we work with, the dwarf seahorse, they actually have very limited migration. When the males give birth, the babies do not go through a pelagic phase, and they actually just attach right next to the adults. Um, and that really, for that particular species, limits their ability to migrate um, and move out of these disturbed areas. So seahorses also face a major threat from overfishing and one contributor to that is aquariums and i have a home aquarium myself so this piece is really interesting to me i know there are captive bred seahorses which could go in home aquariums without affecting wild seahorses so i guess i'm wondering why is this even an issue in the first place are people seeking out wild seahorses or are there not enough captive bred ones to fill that demand I would say that there are not enough captive seahorses to really fill that demand. Um, here in the United States, I only know of a couple of uh, um, aquaculture companies for seahorses. And there are times, um, one company in particular that we work for, um, they might have one species of seahorse that stops breeding or hasn't bred for a while, or they need time to sort of allow the populations to recover if they've had, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of sales and distribution for that particular species. So I have, you know, personally seen that those aquaculture companies can struggle to meet the demands. Um, one of the things I think that that often happens here in Florida too, is that if people are out, you know, using, um, small nets and they, they catch the seahorses, you know, just little dip nets and they bring them home. And seahorses are also used in Chinese traditional medicine. They're used to make curios. And I know you work more on the science side, so I don't want to get too into the economics, but it's an odd situation because typically when there's a demand for something, someone comes in and makes sure there's a supply of it. It's why we don't see cows or chickens going extinct anytime soon. So do you have a sense from your research of why seahorses' economic value isn't leading to more interest in their conservation? Because, I mean, I could see this aquaculture really taking off if there were, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, so there's a few things. Um, you mentioned traditional Chinese medicine, and there are very successful seahorse aquaculture companies in Asia that are able to produce aquacultured seahorses. The issue is that those seahorses are not in high demand to supplement the traditional Chinese medicine trade and the, the, um, the traditional medicines. The reason for that, from my understanding, is that there is 
a lack of desire in the population to use an aquacultured seahorse for medicine. They don't believe that the seahorse has the same potencies and the same sort of infusion of, of chemicals and resources that they would get in the open ocean compared to when you are in an aquaculture setting. So when you look at the, you know, the trade of seahorses, um, right now it's estimated 76 million seahorses are removed from the ocean every single year. And if a majority of that trade is traditional medicines and they don't want aquacultured seahorses, then that, you know, the, the, the economic elements of that just really don't align. Um, one of the other issues that has come up is that all seahorses were listed under CITES Appendix 2, which is the, the Convention on the International Trade of Endangered Species. And what that that legislation does is that it prevents the movement of seahorses between countries. So if there's a, an abundance and overabundance of aquaculture seahorses in China, it's very difficult. You need special permits to then be able to import those into the United States where the demand for having them in home aquariums might be high. Yeah, it's certainly a tricky dilemma because on the one hand, you can imagine there being more and more regulation to keep populations under control. On the other hand, you can imagine uh, opening things up a little bit could kind of create the necessary supply to fill the demand, and it's not necessarily very easy. But I'm curious, as a scientist who works with seahorses, what would be your advice to policymakers or to the conservation world moving forward? What would you want them to know? Unfortunately, there's still a lot of stories that you, you see in the media of the illegal trade of seahorses, um, especially from South America, you hear of container ships that get seized and they have, you know, hundreds of tons of dried seahorses that have illegally been collected from South American or Central American waters that are being transmitted overseas. Um, so while I applaud those efforts, um, there's still a lot of illegal trade of seahorses going on despite the legislation. So I think that here in the United States, there is so much potential for aquaculture um, and there's a lot of demand for the aquarium trade to have these. And if there, there is a way to sort of um, balance that those import concerns while also still being able to advance the science, I think that that would be something we need to, to talk about. My last quick question for you, seahorses have so many fun facts. So I wanted to ask, what is the most surprising thing you've learned about seahorses in your time researching them? Um, I think one of the things that is attracted me to seahorses is that they're also unique and individual. They do have their personalities. Um, you get, you know, the boss of the tank that just kind of swims around and, you know, latches on to everybody else and, and is kind of heavy handed. Then you have the seahorses that are incredibly shy. They hang out in the same spot in the back of the tank. Um, when you, you know, look and check on them, make sure health wise, everybody's okay and do your morning checks. They, they shy away from you. They turn their, their heads like, nope, you can't look at me today. Um, so I think that, that that individualized personality that you see with them is incredibly fascinating. Dr. Krejci, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. 
This wraps up episode 88 of The Sweaty Penguin. Take two minutes, help out the show, and get a shout-out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Podcast Addict, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. You get merch, bonus content, and more. Clips today came from BBC, UBC Institute for the Oceans and Fisheries, the Seahorse Trust, Wired, and Seahorse Hawaii. Special thanks to our Emperor Penguin patrons, Lawrence Harris and Brownies Central. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guest they do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of Peril and Promise or the WNET group. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week.